Well, we are in a story. Uh, if you've been with us for a few weeks, you know that we are in a story, a story that the front of your bulletin tells us runs from Genesis 37 to 50. One story, one remarkable story that would make any short story writer proud. <laughs> this is fascinating. And today we come to actually the center of that story. And if you know anything about Hebrew writing or Hebrew poetry, sometimes the very center is what the story turns around. And that's what happens today. With last week and this week, chapters 42 and 43 of Genesis, we're at the very center of this fascinating tale. Uh, that, that shows us something of a grander story that we're all a part of. And so there's fun awaits in this adventure. I'm going to read this long passage, pray for us, and then we'll wade together into Genesis 43 that for today's purposes is entitled Making Peace. And I hope you'll see why. Our scripture reading is from Genesis <clears throat> chapter 43, beginning with the first verse, extending to the end of the chapter. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in an answer to those questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go. And that that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. For my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They rose and went down to Egypt, 
and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the brother, brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke to him at the door of the house and said, oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we've brought it again with us and we've brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man who brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother, Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother? of whom you spoke to me. God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father, would you open our eyes to see a word that stands forever? Would you awaken us to the truth and the beauty of this portion of your word? Would you refresh us? Would you melt us? Would you convict us and lead us forward in the path that you have established as you order our feet and order our loves as we pursue Christ together? In his name we pray. Amen.
When I was growing up, there was a poster uh, that was in the, what we call the family room at our house in Westmead, not too far from here. It was a poster that started in my bedroom. It was a typical adolescent boy's bedroom, so use your imagination. But the wall had posters on it. One was a bullfighter. I'm not sure why. But one was this poster that was a picture of a young teen, apparently, with a basketball driving toward the hoop and laying the ball into the basket for a goal. And somewhere in the background of that picture was another figure, another face. That's all I remember about the photo. But the reason I remember the photo at all is that when I was done with it and trying to redo that bedroom in ways that made sense, uh, as I continued to grow, that poster went from my bedroom to what we call the family room. I, I didn't put it there. But I, re I think the reason that it went from my bedroom to the family room was not the picture, it was the caption. The caption of that poster read like this. Sometimes the people hardest to love are those who are nearest you. It was my mother who took that poster and planted it in our family room as a reminder to all of us of the, the role that we had in one another's lives. Now, we had quite a bit of family harmony. I don't remember any issues really about difficult people to love, but it was a family. And I think she was right to say, to remind us that sometimes the people hardest to love that are those nearest you. You know, where words spoken kind of casually but with an edge become harsh words and then eventually critical attitudes and then those things tend to grow into relational distance and walls of isolation and before you know it there's a chasm in the midst of relationships that were once whole. There was an article in Psychology Today that explains it who says, the, the writer said, we have the least tolerance for negative qualities of those with whom we spend the most time. I mean, let me say that again. We have the least tolerance for the negative qualities of those with whom we spend the most time. Those things that, that might not bother us because it's an occasion or a person that we rarely see, they, they become living monuments you know, in us, and, and we can't walk around that all the time without recognizing this is getting harder and harder to tolerate or to endure something that, we'll just call it a negative quality. Use your imagination. I mean, you've, you've been there. That same article says, our tolerance for all the things we've always disliked invariably diminishes over time. That's a pretty solid observation, it seems. Our tolerance for all the things we've always disliked invariably diminishes over time. 
So whether it's a poster on the wall or a psychologist meeting in the middle, we have some familiarity with what this is about. That's exactly what Joseph and his brothers were engaged with. You, you know, most of you know some of the story, even if you haven't been with us for these few weeks. But, but what we find is that there's a shalom or a peace or a, or a, a flourishing, a getting along, a well-being of this family that was shattered a long time before Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. That part of the story you're most familiar with. But we talked about this. And you'll remember that, that even with the giving of that special robe, Joseph was singled out. He was the favorite. And anytime a sibling is designated favorite, there's problems brewing from, from the beginning. Favoritism. And then you remember Joseph's report, you know, when dad sent Joseph to check on those brothers and he comes back and tells on the brothers and that adds to it. And then there's those dreams, you know, we talked about Joseph's dreams. And when you add all that together, you can see that this family has become, become, has become shattered over the favoritism and the, and the way that Joseph responded to that and the brother's envy, which we understand Ian Duguid is one of my favorite writers on these things, and I've read him on Genesis, and you'll hear a couple of references to his observations, and he makes this one. With all of that going on, and Joseph now tucked away in Egypt and things pretty well in order, he's got quite a lifestyle, but he has made no effort to contact his family. Did you notice that? And we don't wonder why. <laughs> We don't wonder why Joseph didn't contact those brothers and says, come, I've got food for you here. No, he was ready to really uh, be finished with that painful chapter. You know, there are times when we determine that, that it's easier to live unreconciled and just go our merry way. But God doesn't leave us there. And he didn't leave Joseph Long after the bruises from the tumble down into the pit had healed, the emotional scars remained. And you may know, you may have emotional scars from somewhere along the way. It's actually, there's tragedy in this. You remember uh, what we, you, you heard the reference to Israel. Jacob had been given, had been given a new name. Jacob's name was, was called Israel in chapter 37. And the promise to him was this. Your sons, Jacob, Israel, are to be a company of nations. Remember that phrase? A company of nations. From you, Jacob, will come a company of nations. A, a band of brothers that will be the seedbed for the world to come. It's that big. And yet, there's nothing close to that. Anywhere in sight of this, there's no harmonious band of brothers that are walking in the same direction together. A family's deeply broken relationships are on display. 
C.S. Lewis infamously said, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. <laughs> Joseph had a lot to forgive, but he can't simply say, I forgive you. Why is that? Not because it's hard. He can't say that because God never says it doesn't matter. But Joseph needed to see something. He needed to see something in his brothers. He needed to see the beginnings of some kind of change. That's what this chapter is about. Joseph's intent and desire to see some movement from the brothers that had disowned him and, and sold him into slavery. And then lied about it to their father. There's lots of things that need to change for reconciliation. And Joseph is looking for a clue that something is beginning to change in these brothers of his. There's a key word. It's wrapped up in the word well in this narrative. But now we're not talking about a well or a pit. We're talking about peace, that kind of wellness, that kind of, could we say, shalom because that's actually the word. That word appears four times, not in our English versions, but it's a key word, it's a key concept. It's really what Joseph is after because it's what God is after. And we're gonna see that as we continue to go. We're gonna see that God is in the business of making unlikely peace in fractured families. Whether that's yours or another's, but we're gonna look at this one. We're going to see a family in ruin inching toward a family in process. And we're going to see how God does that. Are you curious? Do you want to see and find hope? Find hope for your broken and strained family relations? Well, with the time we have, uh, three categories. We're going to look at negotiations in Canaan. That's where this story, this chapter opens. Negotiations in Canaan. We're going to look at encounters in Egypt. And then we're going to consider prospects for the world to come. Canaan, Egypt, and the world to come. Uh, the negotiations are those first 14 verses, that dialogue back and forth. The brothers, just to review, the brothers are now back in Canaan with food and silver that they thought they had left in payment for that food that had been stuck back in their bags. They're back in Canaan with a dilemma, the dilemma partly being we thought we had paid and apparently we haven't and we don't know how that worked and the famine is getting worse. So whatever food they brought back was running out and now they're talking with their father and they're negotiating a way to deal with the dilemma. The dilemma is worse because as you learned, Simeon is still in Egypt in prison. So the 11 brothers came back 10 brothers and Simeon left behind. And what we're going to recognize as the negotiations play out that a leader emerges. We're about to see that. Jacob, for, for, for where he sits, Jacob is clinging to Benjamin. You remember how this, we just heard it, how the story plays out. You told him you had another brother? Why did you do that? You had to tell him about the other brother. You see, 
Joseph had been singled out, but, but Joseph and Benjamin were the two special ones for Jacob. They were, his, they were the bride of Rachel, his, his beloved wife. And Jacob was going to hold on. I've, I've, I've lost Joseph, and, and now I can't spare Benjamin. And now Simeon, another son, is in jail in Egypt, and you want me to give away one more of my sons? You want me to risk his life because we are hungry? We've got a dilemma, but that's not the remedy, is Jacob's take on the things. Joyce Baldwin about this passage says, Jacob's own world was in jeopardy, and he was desperately trying to salvage it. Have you ever been there? where whatever that was making up your world was in jeopardy and you're trying to hang on, whether that's financial or relational or job-wise, you're getting a little bit of a taste of what, what Jacob is dealing with. His world is unraveling, but also the very promises of God. He's, he's determined that that the line, the promise that was made to him inevitably would go through either Joseph or Benjamin these other brothers have turned out to be, let's say, less than what we would want in the leadership of a nation or a family. And then Judah appears. Look at verse 8. Judah steps into this dilemma with some profound words. Judah actually begins to lead the family. Reuben is the oldest, and typically we point to him or look to the oldest son of this, in this case, 12, to lead the way, to, to speak for the others. But, and he's tried that. He tried that a chapter earlier when he said, I'll, I'll put my two sons' lives on the line. And Jacob was having none of that. And Reuben fades into the background, and into the foreground emerges Judah who says, who breaks the stalemate with his father and the sons. Unlike Reuben, who failed to persuade his father, Judah does so. Judah successfully convinces Jacob to entrust Benjamin into his care. And how did he do that? Well, you heard the words. Verse 9, I myself, I will guarantee his safety. It is my life on the line for Benjamin and our future and the food that we need. So Jacob is virtually convinced, and I say that because of the way this little section ends, but he says, okay, I'm not sure about this, but Jacob, I'm going to take you at your word that you're going to bring Benjamin back. I'm looking him, you in the eyes. Look at me, son. You're coming back with this one, right? And if you do this, take food with you. Take not only the money that's in your sack, but take double that. So you're going back with three times the amount that that food that we're going to purchase, that we thought we were purchasing, will cost. And take some food with you. Take some samples from this land uh, curiously, the list of items that he says be sure and take were in the caravan that went to Egypt with Joseph to begin with. That we're supposed to pick up on that and to recognize 
There's some mirroring going on here. There's another journey with some of the same delicacies going now to, to Egypt again with three times the silver and a brother who has pledged the safety of now the 11th brother. Judah steps up. There's something going on in Judah. I mentioned he's not the eldest son. He, he would have deferred to Reuben again, and, and yet he steps into the gap. And then he does something remarkable when he pledges himself to this, to remedy this dilemma. God was at work changing Judah, even before he made the, this return trip to Egypt. It wasn't a complete change. There's no confession of how he and his brothers had sinned against their father in their dealings with Joseph. That was still behind closed doors. That curtain had not been lifted. He had not told his father everything, but Judah was beginning to step forward. There was some change going on there. Ian Duguid said about that, while there's no substantive change uh, yet, Substantive change is rarely a 180-degree turn. Real change in anybody's life, yours, mine, Judah's, is usually in small incremental steps. Maybe that's what we should be looking for, Duguid writes, that we should be looking for in our strained and shattered relationships. Small steps. And that we celebrate those small steps made in the right direction to watch for those, to mark those, to call them what they are, some movement and progress, all the while acknowledging that, there, that we have a good deal more to do. There is more work to be done. That's how the brothers leave Canaan. And then they step into Egypt. Verses 15 to 34 is where we see the rest of this, this story, part of the story played out. Negotiations in Canaan lead to encounters in Egypt, where we read in verse 10 that the brothers arrived and they stood before Joseph. Now, they didn't know it was Joseph. They're still calling him the man. They see him apparently at a distance, and he sees his brother Benjamin at a distance. And I say that because of how the story plays out, that he apparently sees him at a distance and recognizing there's Benjamin. Yeah, there, that's Benjamin. And he tells the steward, his right hand, to get ready. And then from the next several verses, it's the steward who's interacting with these brothers. And he's the one who says to them, hey, come. Come to Joseph's house for dinner. Come for, there's a meal that we are preparing for you. An invitation into Joseph's house. And when they hear that, there's, there's a degree of unease and fear that comes with it. I mean, remember this now. And they actually, they say this when they get to the steward and they say, hey, listen, we're back. We're back with, with the silver that, that got put back. We don't know how it happened, but the silver was back in our bags. And, and we've come back to purchase more. And we brought twice that silver and our brother who, who the man requested. And so we're back, mercy, depending on your mercy, but we've done what we know to do and we've done more than we thought we could 
And here we are. And the steward looks at him and basically says, relax. I mean, that's kind of what he says. He says, don't fear. God has returned your silver. We've been paid. And, you're, and Joseph wants you to be his guest. So whatever trap they thought they were walking into now looks a little different. Maybe a little uncertainty about can we trust the steward? Can, can, or what will we find when we gather at Joseph's invitation for the man who was talking to us so harshly? You remember that? Last chapter, Joseph talking to his brothers without them knowing who it was, speaking to them harshly. That's the last thing they've heard from him. And now they're going back with the silver that they thought they had left, and they're going back to the man who has treated them harshly. And the steward says, the steward actually borrows words from their faith. And he says, shalom. Well, they weren't expecting to hear that. And it wasn't Hebrew, but, but it was the word. It was peace be with you. Your God, your God, the God that you believe in, he has provided for you. They're hearing a foreigner borrow their language and their faith for the moment to say, peace. And so then the story really turns. They come, and Joseph is now before them. And, and there are those words that we, we knew we were going to hear one day when, when they bowed down, now for the second time. Remember the dreams? <laughs> They've been fulfilled. The brothers have now bowed down to Joseph twice, just like the dreams foretold. And the man who spoke roughly to them just a chapter ago, speaks words of kindness. When he asks about their welfare, their peace, their shalom. He asks about, is, is it well with your father? How is he? That word repeatedly occurs. And you see, Joseph is in the midst of this story that God is writing to pursue and to restore an unexpected and a surprising peace in the midst of a family that is torn and shattered. And then one of the most tenderest scenes of all, verse 29, Joseph lifted his eyes and saw Benjamin. He's no longer at a distance. Face to face, we don't know for sure, but he lifted his eyes and saw Benjamin, his mother's son, meaning this is my real blood brother. These other 11, these other 11, these other 10, are the, it's a mixed marriage of sorts. It's a blended family, and this is my brother. And he looks at them, and he says to his brother, God be gracious to you, my son. I don't know what Benjamin would have been expecting to hear 
But I doubt it was that. God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph couldn't hold it in. Joseph dashed away because at the sight of his brother and the mention of his God, he, he came apart. And he, and he removes himself from the scene and apparently goes behind closed doors or a curtain and weeps. He has to find a place. Maybe it's far enough so that they can't hear him. But it's at least out of sight. The Hebrew for Joseph's response was, his mercy burned hot. Have you ever had mercy burn hot? Joseph's mercy burned hard. Bruce Walkie says, under the cloak of Egyptian appearance, his love for his family throbs. I'm guessing some of you do know that. What it's like for love for a family to throb. And then you look at the family and you wonder... Is this going to get fixed? That's where Joseph was. His love for his family throbbed. Is this going to get fixed? Am I going to be able to wrap my arms around these brothers of mine? The one who with, is blood related to me, that this the sight of has undone me? Am I ever going to be able to embrace these others? There's a breakthrough that's taking place right here. The brothers are oblivious. <laughs> but Joseph is on the precipice. He sees what might become. They have a dinner. They're seated together. These God-prompted negotiations have led to God-arranged encounters. The brothers take their seat, their assigned seat. The, the steward of the home brings them out one at a time and says, you're here, you're here, you're here. They're seated at the table, and then they look up and they realize a birth order. This is our birth order. Now, if it were three brothers, that would not be such a big deal. Ten brothers are looking at each other now, and eleven are looking to see, wait, this is how we were born. And they're not sure what to do with it. We're told that they're amazed. My guess is they're beginning to suspect that there's something going on here. That's bigger than us. They don't know it's Joseph. But they're beginning to imagine that there's something going on here bigger than us. We've, been, we've come back as apparent criminals. We've been welcomed into this home. There's food being prepared for us. We're sitting in this arrangement that we couldn't have supposed. What is going on? But what's going on is God is ultimately up to something. He's using Joseph. He's using the cooks. 
He's using the pieces of the story that are coming together because what God is doing is he's not, he's, he has initiated these negotiations. It was the famine. Remember, that's what created the negotiations. A God-delivered famine, a famine gone bad, gone worse. That's God's hand. And so these encounters in Egypt and those negotiations, these encounters are all a part of something that have to do with prospects for the world to come. How can we say that? How could I venture that? You see, this is peace being restored to a fragmented family. To be reconciled, there needs to be repentance and remorse. We've gotten that. Genuine repentance that leads to a changed life. And God is using Joseph to restore and renew the family's deep relationships in ways that boggle their imagination. They're sitting at a table now and we read that they are feasting and enjoying one another. Joseph still says, you know, there's, there's change that we need to see evidenced in their lives. And so when it comes to Benjamin's plate, it's, it's piled higher than the others. They've all got plenty of food and Benjamin has five times as much as the rest as any one individual sitting before them. And Joseph, what is that about? It apparently, Joseph is designing another opportunity to test, to see what change has occurred in these brothers. How did they act the last time one of their brothers was favored? <laughs> Joseph knows. Joseph remembers the pit and he's lavished all of this food and provision on Benjamin to see how his brothers will treat that and respond to that. Because tomorrow, they don't know this yet, but they will leave with food and their brother and an opportunity to, to, to deal with a favored brother once again and return to Canaan with, with the food that they need, the brother that they hate, and the perfect excuse. Yeah. Sorry, Dad, you were right. They kept Benjamin. Judah? <laughs> the perfect excuse to get rid of another favored brother. Now that story is going to play out as we keep going in Genesis. But one of the things that we're to pick up from this story, and the reason there's so much attention that we're that Genesis gives to this story is that this is not just any family. It would be a grand story by itself, but this is not just any other, any family. You see, God's initiative of those negotiations and those arrangements and those encounters in Egypt are all about the world to come. How is that? God sent a famine in order to restore and renew a family into a company of nations. They're not there yet, but they do have a new leader. Judah has emerged. Judah is the one who's pledged himself to guarantee the deliverance of a son in an Egyptian prison as well as the young favored Benjamin now. 
the God who sent a famine in Canaan, you see, would one day send a son to Bethlehem. A son from the line of Judah. A redeemer whose religious brothers would take him and sell him for silver and then crucify him. It's not just any family and it's not just any place. The surprise here of this narrative is that the Hebrews, these these Hebrew brothers were welcomed into an Egyptian house. You read a little bit about how striking that might have been because they can't eat together. Did you notice that? They're served separately. They can't eat together. There's a division. Hebrew, Egyptian division. These Hebrews are welcomed in the Egyptian home, but the reality is there will be a day coming. This redeemer from Judah, from the line of Judah, the God who sent a famine, who sends a son to Bethlehem, sends a son to Bethlehem as a redemption. And there will be day when, a day when Egypt takes their place in another house, in the household of God. You see, that's what God is up to. That's the world to come. It comes through the line of Judah. It comes in surprising ways. It catches us off guard and it astonishes us. In verse 9, when Judah says, I will bear the blame. Remember, he pledged himself. He says, I will bear the blame. Those words accurately translated are this. I will have sinned. And what we see in Judah is a picture of another one who would say, I will bear the blame. I will have sinned. In the words of the Apostle Paul, God made for our sake him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Judah's words form Jesus' life, the Redeemer who was sent by the Father to restore, to restore shattered families. You know, sometimes it seems easier to forget, as I mentioned earlier, to go back to living unreconciled lives. But friends, the end of your story is not yet written. The end of your family story is not yet written. And those unresolved relationships, those shattered and strained things do have hope. The reality is sometimes we are the ones who need to change. But we don't have the power. We don't have the power to change and to just take bitterness and turn it into something else. We don't have the power to do that. 
until you take your place in God's family. Until you step into the story. Because you know you need a redeemer who can restore what you cannot and transform what you are unable to change. We take our place in God's story and then we begin to see small steps in the right direction. Maybe that's all it is. But we know it's a story that is not ended. It's a family that is God's that he establishes, he renews, and he restores. Indeed, sometimes the people hardest to love are those who are nearest you. And then Jesus comes along. And we learn to love. For the first time. Because he first loved us. Father, would you seal that truth to our hearts? Would we be amazed and staggered like those brothers at a seating arrangement by your love for us? That the gospel is true, that you have remembered your promise to send a redeemer to restore and renew, to make things right, to heal, to forgive, to establish. And to give us a little taste of that shalom that is ours in the world to come, even as we live our lives in this one. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.